Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us today for Mulcahy Law Firm's First Friday a free call in. Today's January 7th, 2022, and I'm already seeing a number of people joining us to have their questions answered this morning. We have a lot of great questions already that have been submitted. Um, and we're also going to be talking about a few hot topics um, like COVID-19, the Arizona legislature starting next week, our education plans for our firm for 2022. So let's get started. It looks like we've leveled off at about almost 50 people here this morning. So welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Beth Mulcahy, and I'm the founder and senior partner of the Mulcahy Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been representing associations, HOAs, and condominiums for the past 25 years, and I look forward to working with you, with all of you, for many more years in the future. Our firm currently represents over a thousand community associations, HOAs, and condominiums throughout the state of Arizona. And I also currently serve on my board of directors and have for many years. So I think I bring a kind of unique perspective to uh, the classes that I teach and to these three call-ins because not only do I practice as a lawyer in the area of representing associations, but I also currently serve on my board. I mean, I want you to know I was working on an issue for our board last night until late last night. So I feel your pain if any of you board members were up also working on things for your community. Welcome to our firm's virtual First Friday free call-in. Um, First Fridays are a great time to get all your questions on Arizona HOA and condo law answered at no charge. Here's how First Fridays are going to work today. If you haven't done so already, please submit your First Friday questions in the Q&A box on Zoom or in the comments section if you're joining us on Facebook Live this morning as soon as possible. And then I will answer all questions between now and 10 a.m. Just a quick friendly reminder, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association because there's such a high volume of people that come to these and because also there are so many questions, we want to make sure that we have each association get at least one question answered. So thank you in advance for understanding. Well, first, let's start off with Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us in 2022. I thought that 2022 might be a year where we weren't going to have to spend a lot of time talking about COVID and how associations need to pivot in COVID. But unfortunately, I think we, if anybody's watching the news, and I know most of us are, the new variant, the Omicron variant is spreading throughout the United States. And if I had to guess, I'm sure you all know probably at least one person who currently has it. And it's it's still an issue in our country. So as a just a starting point, for most associations, our firm is, for most associations that have common areas that have in or facilities. That's an important distinction, such as like a gym or a clubhouse or a pool house or something like that, where it's enclosed. Our firm is still recommending that you require owners to wear masks on common areas that are enclosed. Obviously, if you have common areas that are outside, that is not necessary. It's important that you continue with the sanitization of common areas that are enclosed, such as gyms and interior facilities. And then also virtual meetings are still recommended. I think most of us now have adapted to having board meetings and annual meetings on Zoom 
or maybe another virtual platform that your association may be more comfortable with. And it's really working. From, from my perspective as legal counsel for associations, we've seen higher participation in virtual meetings, better behavior, and overall better quality of life for board members and owners because they can do the meetings from their home. And if they live out of state, they're still able to participate in board meetings and annual meetings. Just a couple of friendly reminders on the virtual meeting. You still do have to comply with Arizona law regarding the open meeting law. And so we have a great little cheat sheet called Tips for Conducting Virtual Meetings that we wrote way back when, in April 2020, and we've continued to update it as this pandemic has unfolded. And so we're going to be sharing with you here in a minute the cheat sheet on virtual meetings, and we hope that you'll take a look at it and refresh your memory on what are the requirements of Arizona open meeting law and how can you still comply with it even though you're now conducting your meetings virtually. So just a quick update to conclude on COVID-19. It looks like it's going to be here with us at least through the first and possibly the second quarter of 2022. Our recommendations are masks in any enclosed common areas, continued sanitization of your common areas, and virtual meetings. I and mean, just so you know, we're hearing from a lot of our clients that virtual meetings are going to continue even after the pandemic winds down. So I mean, if you haven't yet started to do virtual meetings, please reach out to our firm. We can help you get adjusted to that as soon as possible. Okay, looks like we have 63 people with us on Zoom, and I, I see a number of you also joining us on Facebook Live, so thanks for being here. Let's talk a little bit about the Arizona legislature. They open on January 10th. We've already seen one bill introduced, which we're going to be talking about here in a minute on flags. Throughout the legislative session, our firm will continue, as always, to update you every Monday on the homepage of our webpage with what's going on in the legislature. And so what we've traditionally done and what we will continue to do is we'll give a list of the pending bills regarding HOAs and condos in the Arizona legislature. And we update it every week to let you know where the legislation is going, what's the next step, has it passed, the House and the Senate, is it on the governor's desk? We update you for however long the legislative session is open. And last year, we had a long legislative session because the budget negotiations, you know, took them right to the very last. For some of you who might have lived in another state and have moved to Arizona later in life, Arizona doesn't have a full-time legislature. We only have a part-time legislature. And so it typically opens in early January. And the final date that business needs to be conducted by, unless it's extended, is June 30th. Usually, most legislative sessions, you know, in the 25 years I've been following it. In a quick year, it's closed by maybe late March, early April. In a very busy legislative year, we've seen it extend all the way through June, like last year. I don't know what's in store, to, in store this year, but I can give you some predictions. We already saw one bill that was introduced yesterday before the legislative session even started. I and mean, that bill was pertaining to first responder flags and having a first responder flag be an approved flag that owners can fly in an association at any time. And the association wouldn't be able to prohibit it. As you probably already know, in Arizona, we have already have a law regarding flags and the American flag, the armed forces flags, the Arizona state flag, the Indian nations flag, the Gazden flag. All those are flags that owners can fly if they so choose on their property. And this introduced bill, I think, is kind of a sign of the times, right, of the COVID bills that any any sign or any flag, excuse me, that would be for a first responder flag, if this bill passes and becomes a law, associations wouldn't be able to prohibit. So we're keeping an eye on, of course, that bill. And we're usually following 15 or 20 bills as the legislature opens and things start really cranking up there. So what to expect for this year? I think we're going to see something 
on short-term rentals. As you may know, in 2019, short-term rentals were really a very hot topic in our industry. And what I can um, tell you is that since... 2019, we've really been kind of sidetracked with COVID. And the governor in 2019 said, this is something that is a legislative agenda of mine. And I think this year they're going to come in and make some corrections to give associations a larger ability to regulate short-term rentals and, and maybe even give the regulation of short-term rentals back to cities, towns, and municipalities. So flags, short-term rentals, political signs. I think there could possibly be a correction this year on um, the requirement that associations send a statement of account to every owner in the association with how much money is owed. And I think that's definitely something that should have happened in 2020. It didn't because of the pandemic. So I think we're going to, we'll keep an eye on it for you. Those are my predictions. We're usually pretty accurate based upon the fact that we've been watching this for a long time and we kind of have seen a lot of legislative trends over the years. So stay tuned because every live class that we teach between now and the time that the legislative session ends, we're going to be talking about what's going on in the legislature so that you're aware of any new bills and any laws that ultimately are passed by both the House and the Senate in Arizona and signed by Governor Ducey. Okay, let's talk quickly about our education plans for 2022. This is our first live virtual seminar for 2022. We have the first six months of 2022 planned out, and we're going to be continuing our partnership with the Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academies. And those are going to be the third Tuesday of every month at 11 a.m., just like we did in 2021. And we're going to be sharing our class topics for those uh, seminars with the Neighborhood Services Virtual HOA Academy here later today. So stay tuned. But every month we're going to be coming to you live with our first Fridays, the first Friday of the month. We're going to be doing our virtual HOA academies the third Tuesday of every month. And we're going to be sprinkling in some other live seminars for individual cities, towns, and municipalities. So I would definitely encourage you to continue to check our website at mulcahylawfirm.com because we post all of our upcoming classes. We're going to be teaching virtually for the Scottsdale Neighborhood College next Wednesday, January 12th at 1 p.m. And all that's going to be virtual. You can go to our website to find out more information on that. And we're also going to be teaching, like I said, our virtual HOA and Condo Academy, our first class of 2022 on Tuesday, January 18th at 11 a.m. So look forward to providing free education to our industry again in 2022. It's been wonderful to see all of you joining us virtually, and we plan to continue doing that throughout 2022. Also, don't forget that our website has a lot of free resources for all of you. We have all of our prior videos. We have our popular cheat sheets. I think over 60 cheat sheets on different topics that pertain to associations. Our blog has hot topics that we're releasing on a monthly basis. So make sure you're checking all that out if you have questions or if you want to learn more about how to better run your associations or how associations should be efficiently running. And our website again is mulcahylawfirm.com. Okay, one final thing before we get into our January questions, which have been submitted. It's kind of awkward for me to ask this, but I'm going to ask if any of you are so inclined. I would ask that if you like what we're doing out there in our industry, if you're a client of our firm, if you come to our virtual seminars and you like what we um, are providing to you for free, if you wouldn't mind, we would sincerely appreciate it if you would give us a review on either Facebook 
Google or Yelp. The best way to do that is just to go to those platforms and type in Mulcahy Law Firm and then share your thoughts. That's really helpful for us because having reviews listed are beneficial to getting our educational information to the top on Google reviews and also help provide input for anybody who might be interested in working with our firm. So appreciate it if you wouldn't mind doing that. Thank you. Okay, let's go to our January questions. Our first question is, we have an owner who's flying an American flag that supports first responders. It's the actual U.S. flag. However, it's black and white and has blue, red, and green stripes on it. The first American or the first responders flag flies underneath the red, white, blue American flag on this owner. The board sent this owner a violation letter. And the owner appealed it, saying that they felt that this is a flag that the association should allow during the pandemic and also because it's flying underneath the American flag. And it's actually an American flag just in different colors. And so the question submitted is, how should we proceed on this? The board has has notified the owner to take the first responders American flag down. The owner's appealing it. This is kind of a sticky situation because it's kind of a gray area under the current law. So how should this board handle it? Okay, so the 2022 legislative session opens on Monday. As I mentioned earlier in this presentation, we've already seen a bill, it's House Bill 2010, which addresses first responder flag. This would apply to both planned communities and condominiums. Now, of course, this isn't the law, but this is pretty instructive as to where the legislature is going. And just so you know, we saw this bill introduced in 2021 in the legislative session. It ultimately didn't pass, likely because there were so many problems with the budget last year in Arizona. And it just required so much discussion by the legislature that I think the the legislators were exhausted by the time the budget was passed and they just didn't pass any additional bills at the end of that session that pertain to HOAs and condos. So I definitely think this is a bill to watch. I think it is going to pass this year in 2022. And my best advice to you as this board would be to allow it for a number of reasons. First, if you look at the language of the current flag law, it does allow for American flags. Now, of course, it says that these flags need to fly consistent with the federal flag code. And I looked this up yesterday to prepare for this call, this first Friday call, Colin. And, you know, it does say under the federal flag code that the flag must be red, white, and blue. However, we're rounding out 18, 20 months, 22 months of global pandemic. And our first responders have definitely stepped up to help all of us during the pandemic and, you know, at previous times in the history of our country and frankly, every day. And my feeling is that it is not a good idea for your association to prohibit this. I would write back to the owner and say that you've reconsidered and let them know that, you know, there is a bill pending in the legislature that's going to make this allowable potentially in 2022. And you've changed your mind and they can continue flying it. That's my recommendation. Now, if you don't do that and you want to go by the black letter of the law of the um, Condo and Planned Communities Act, talking about flags and allowable flags, just recognize that you might become the poster child for this law in the 2022 legislative session. In my experience, the legislature, any bills that are in the legislature, you know, the news outlets are following these bills and they're looking for stories and What a great story for this particular homeowner to call the news station and say, I have a first responder flag and my association isn't allowing me to fly it. 
And this is why we need to encourage the legislature to pass this House Bill 2010, which is pending in the 2022 legislative session. I think it's going to be negative publicity for your association. And I just don't think it's it's not the right thing to do either. When I think our firm really prides ourselves on giving good advice. And I personally don't like it when our clients get sued. I feel that we failed as a firm in helping you make good decisions. And truly, this is like one of those situations where we want to practice preventative legal. And preventative legal calls for you to just allow this flag at this time and see what happens in the legislative session this year and move forward in a positive direction with this honor. So I hope you make the right decision. If you have any follow-up questions, you're always welcome to contact our office. Okay, next question is from a board member. Many people have their own pools and there's concern that unmaintained pools may uh, encourage mosquitoes and the West Nile virus. There was a suggestion to use drones to identify these pools since we cannot see into people's backyards. Is this legal to do? Okay, great question. I guess from my perspective, I would advise against having the association use a drone to investigate violations on owner's lots. Typically in a CCNRs, what the CCNRs will say is that a violation has to be visible from somebody who's standing in a common area when it, who is standing at ground level. And I think it's an invasion of privacy for the association to have drones snooping in people's backyards, frankly. Typically what we see with the pools not being maintained is the neighbors who are adjacent to vacant homes or pools that aren't being maintained, they notify the association or they complain to the county regarding um, the condition of the pool. And the association or the county, um, the association typically will send letters if they can see the pool from, you know, common area, they will potentially, you know, be able to verify whether or not this is true. If they can't verify it, they'll notify the county and the county will send an investigator out to investigate it. So, I mean, West Nile virus is something that we should not be fooling around with. It's serious. And typically how these things work out is that neighbors complain. And then based upon those complaints, the association gets involved with letters or potentially you have to look and see if you have self-help. You might be able to go in and correct the issue in the pool if you have self-help in your documents. Or more likely than not, the county is just going to get invited, get get involved in this matter and come out, treat the pool and get into a complaint status with the owner. So great question. Innovative idea to have the drones, but I do think it's an invasion of privacy and I would advise against it. Okay, next question is from a board member. If we don't meet quorum and we are unable to hold our annual meeting and board elections, we would need to reschedule the annual meeting. Are we obligated to open up the ballot for additional candidates or do we keep the ballots as was originally distributed? Our association does not allow write-ins. So really good question. So this is something that we're seeing actually a lot with associations. This is actually not something that is what I would call new to the pandemic. This is a problem that has you know been around for a long time where you can't get a quorum at your annual meeting and therefore you can't elect a board. I just talked actually with an association about this yesterday. So just kind of a couple thoughts up front. It's obviously it's not good if you can't get a quorum for an annual meeting because then you can't elect a new board. So obviously that's a con of, of not being able to get a quorum. You won't be able to have continuity on your board and that you can't elect new directors. And how typically it works is that the existing directors stay in office until the new directors are 
elected at the annual meeting. So it's kind of like a life sentence for those board members if you can't get new electors directed at an annual meeting. But one positive thing that I think you should also think about is you know, people are happy if people aren't showing up at the annual meeting or at your board meetings. Typically, that does mean that things are going well in your association. So don't be too hard on yourselves if you can't get a quorum. But specifically on this problem, if you can't get a quorum, you know, at your first attempt at the annual meeting, typically what we suggest to boards is try again one more time. And lots of times your bylaws will have something in there that says, like the board can re-notice the annual meeting within 30 days and they suspend the, the first annual meeting and then they you know, take those ballots and use them for the reconvened annual meeting maybe 30 days later or two weeks later or whatever. It, every association's bylaws are different. So read your bylaws on this. So I guess the question is, if um, you've already sent out the ballots for the first annual meeting, you don't get a quorum, you're re-noticing the second annual meeting and you're using the same ballots from the first annual meeting, you really can't add somebody new because in your case, it doesn't allow write-in candidates, as you said in your question. So in your case, I wouldn't be open to, you know, getting a new ballot and sending it out with the one new name on it because you really need the ballots from the first meeting that you got to help you get a quorum at the second meeting. And so it's really just going to depend on a case-by-case basis how your association, you know, do you all write in candidates, et cetera. But in this particular circumstance, I would use the ballots from the first annual meeting at your reconvened annual meeting where you're trying to get a quorum. And I would not add that person because write-in candidates aren't allowed according to your documents, as you stated in your question. Now, this isn't a hard and fast rule. So many associations do allow write-in candidates. And so if your association allows write-in candidates, what you could do is allow that person to be a write-in candidate at the second attempt at having the annual meeting. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be just to send out a totally new ballot for your second attempt at the annual meeting. And we've seen it done all three ways. So there's no hard and fast rule. You just have to look at what your documents say and what's going to give you the result that you want, right? The result that you want is that you have a quorum, that you have enough candidates running for spots that are open on the board, and that you can get new people elected. Um, We recently just had a situation with an association that we work with in Scottsdale, and they were trying to get homeowners to respond on a CCNR amendment. And this is kind of the same analogy can be done for annual meetings. And what they did is they asked their vendors to donate money. And then they made anyone who returned the ballot eligible to win the raffle money. And they got it up to 500 bucks. And it was just a great way to build goodwill, have a little fun in your community and to have, you know, kind of a competitive little raffle. And it worked out really well. They got what they needed to get in terms of the vote. And the vendors were happy to chip in and help out because they have worked with the associations for a long time. So just some thoughts on how you might be able to get a quorum at your annual meeting. Have a a topic also. So another way to get a quorum is have a topic that's kind of controversial or have a guest speaker um, that people want to hear from talking about a topic that's a hot topic in your neighborhood. All these are good suggestions to try to help you increase the chances of getting a quorum at your annual meeting. Okay, next question. Um, We're on question number four right now, and it looks like we have about 16 questions today. So I'm just going to keep going through them. Our CCRs require architectural approval before constructing a shed. A homeowner constructed a backyard potting shed without approval. 
It can be seen from the street and it's poorly constructed of scrap wood. This owner was sent a violation notice. In response, he produced a document our former board president signed right after construction saying, on behalf of the board, the shed is approved. The former president was out of line to do this, but the president did unilaterally approve it on our behalf. Since prior approval wasn't obtained and the shed is an eyesore, can we, the current board, insists the shed be taken down. I probably need more facts to give you, you know, a perfectly legal answer on this, but there's a couple issues here that are important for us to talk about. Okay, number one, I don't know when this was constructed. So it's your question says a homeowner constructed a backyard potting shed without approval. So is this something that's recent when the current board, you know, is in office? Did it happen while you were in office or did this happen a long time ago? when this former president was in office and the former president, you know, had apparent authority at that time as president of the association to approve it. That's an important question for me to know. I'm an answer to that question. I guess I'll look at it from a couple different angles to help you out here. If the owner just constructed it and they did not receive approval from your current board, you have the legal right to pursue this owner. The former president doesn't have the authority because they're not, she's not on the board anymore. So I'm kind of guessing maybe that that's not what happened here. But if they just recently constructed it and they didn't get approval from the current board or the architectural current architectural committee, you definitely can enforce your documents against this person. If is what I kind of think happened is that maybe this has been around for a while and the former board president may have you know, signed off on it by saying the shed is approved while that former president was in office, I think you're out of luck and you're going to have to allow the shed. Also, if the shed's been around for more than three years, you said it's visible from the street, we may have waived our right to enforce it. So I hope I can answer your question on that. I'm sorry, I don't have more details on the timeline. You're welcome to follow up with me by email if you have any other questions on that. Okay, next question. Is it appropriate for board members to carry on a conversation about projects under consideration via email. I'm concerned about transparency and the open meeting law. There are not necessarily votes taken, but there's a lot of discussion on the issues that clearly indicate how each board member feels about a particular item. So email, email and discussion of items by email by boards, it's tricky. The open meeting law in Arizona requires that anytime a quorum of board is present, whether it's in person or virtually or even by email, discussing association business, it's a violation of the open meeting law. So I guess questions would be, is it a quorum of the board discussing these issues? So on email is one board member putting an issue out there, hitting reply all, and then everybody's replying all and everybody's seeing everybody's answers on this. If so, yes, this likely is an open meeting violation. There are some exceptions on, you know, workarounds on the open meeting law on email. So I'm going to give a couple of those to you so that you are aware of them. First, if there's an emergency and your board needs to take immediate action and you can't wait 48 hours to make a decision, you can make a decision by email. That is, there are emergency powers that are granted to associations under the open meeting law. Make sure you keep a record of what, what happened, whether it's the emails or minutes, if you have minutes of the emergency meeting, and then read into the record what was decided by the board at the next regular board meeting. That would be one thing. This doesn't sound like an emergency, though. So some workarounds on this would be less than a quorum discussing it. So 
individual board members less than a quorum can discuss association business and it's not a violation of the open meeting law. That may be one way to do it. But really, as legal counsel for associations and as somebody who wants my clients and anyone who's listening in on this call to follow the law, please be careful on this. Your board meetings are the time to discuss projects. And I don't know what type of projects you're you're working on, but maybe you're doing some planning on a long-term capital expenditure or common area. Really, your discussion and your voting on that must take place during the open board meeting. So keep that in mind. It's okay, of course, for you to exchange information in between board meetings. Like I've reached out to several vendors regarding building the new wall around the pool. And here's the information I found. Let's talk about this at the next board meeting. That type of communication by email is okay. But arguing merits and discussing merits on projects you know, with a quorum of the board by email is a violation of open meeting law. Okay, next question. You know, and if you have any questions on the open meeting law, we do have a lot of cheat sheets on our website that could be helpful. One just specifically on the open meeting law and also one on board meetings. And you can find those at mulcahylawfirm.com. And you can just click on our cheat sheet tab on our website and type in board meetings and it'll pop right up for you. And we'll give you the whole 411 on board meetings, emergency meetings, email, use of email at board meetings, and that could be a helpful tool for your association. Okay, next question is, our bylaws state we shall have three directors, but we can increase the number up to 11 upon majority vote of the members. We have had five directors for 15 years. Only three homeowners have submitted their names as candidates for the new board. If we don't get five total for the new board, do we need member approval to reduce the board to three? Or can we simply continue to operate with three board members? Look at the language of your bylaws on this question, because if your bylaws specifically state that you can, you have to have a minimum of three, but you could increase up to 11 um, with the majority vote of the members, it's my opinion that if you only get three people on the board, it's then you're within the guidelines of your bylaws and that's fine. You don't need to have homeowner approval to reduce it. But look at that specific language because sometimes there's a sentence after that that says, you know, if the board is going to increase or reduce the size of the board within the three to 11, you know, member confines, the board needs to vote on it at an open board meeting or something like that. Here, it looks like if you want to increase it, you need a majority vote of the members, which actually is kind of unusual. But based upon what you're telling me, I don't think you need approval to lower it to three because your documents don't say that. And what you might want to do is the first meeting after the annual meeting, have the board just announce that it's going to be a three-member board now. We couldn't get enough candidates to have a five-member member board and that pursuant to the bylaws, the three-member board is adequate. Okay, next question. We have a hoarder living in our community. She is not letting the manager go into her unit and check the unit. She refuses anyone to go into her unit. We are having problems with roaches and all units around have been fumigated. What else can we do? Okay, so this is a condo question and this is, you know, borders on an owner creating a nuisance for other owners in the association. And specifically because they're not maintaining their unit and then the problem is spreading to other units. We have a great blog on this topic, which we're going to be sharing with you shortly. Tips for dealing with hoarders. So I think that will be something that you're going to definitely want to do deep dive into. And if you're joining us on Zoom, it'll be in the the, um, 
comments question. If you're joining us um, on Facebook Live, we'll be putting it in the messages part or the notes part on Facebook Live. Okay, so how do we deal with this person? Number one, look at your documents to see if your documents have a provision in there that allows the board entry into a unit when there are problems or issues. Upon reasonable notice that the board can enter into a unit and inspect the unit for any potential violations. So hopefully you have that in your documents. And if you do, you should send the owner a letter and let the owner know the date, time, and you'll be entering the unit. But if the owner is, hoarding is, can be at times a sign of mental illness. And if the hoarder is refusing to let you enter the unit, you may have to hire an off-duty police officer or have the police involved to help you get into the unit at the time that you're required to, to inspect it. Hope you don't have to do that, but we have seen associations do that. If, if you think it's going to be a situation like that, you definitely should be talking with your legal counsel so that you set this up in a manner that's safe for everybody. So, you know, once you're able to enter the unit, then you can better size up what the issues are. And then we can, you know, start sending violation letters or we can send in a crew to actually do the work that needs to be done, whatever it is, exterminator, etc. If you don't have that provision or if the owner is dangerous and you're worried about doing that, you definitely may need to think about filing a lawsuit, getting an injunction, having a court order that the owner comply with whatever needs to be done. You're going to need legal counsel involved to help you navigate this process. One kind of parting point on this is I have in 25 years doing this, I have a lot of different experiences as general counsel attorney for associations. I had a case very early in my career where we had an owner in a condo who had, there was an issue with too many cats. We actually did not know how many cats there were in there. It got to the point that there was cat urine dripping down the walls into the unit below. So we knew it was really bad. And I was personally there that day that we inspected the upper unit. And I was horrified when we got there and, you know, we were allowed into the unit. There were over 150 cats and this was a one bedroom apartment and it was a disaster to say the least. So um, if you are going into a unit like that, be really careful um, because there's lots of health risks, especially even with COVID now. Everybody should be masked up. You probably should have an expert doing the inspection and not board members. And I know a colleague of mine got really sick after doing a inspection, got a bacterial infection after doing an inspection of a hoarder's you know, property. So just be really mindful of that and careful. You also may want to reach out to your city and see if any of the neighborhood services departments in your city or county have programs that might be able to help you with this. So there's a lot of different options. You're probably going to need your legal counsel to help you navigate this process, take look at our blog for other ideas as well. So good luck to you on that. Okay, next question. What are the steps for removal of directors and board members once the petition is submitted? How long do they have to comply? Okay, so this question is from an owner. We have some different publications that our firm has put out on removal of directors that you should take a look at. Number one, we have a cheat sheet, the top 10 things you need to know about Arizona Community Association Law, and that's on our website at mulcahylawfirm.com. You can take a look at a blog that we've written on this that we're going to be sharing with you shortly on the HOA condo board removal process. And also you can take a look at the law. In Arizona, board members can be removed in planned communities under ARS. 33-1813 and for condos under ARS 33-1243. So bottom line process, when 
somebody is removed, you know, from office. So you're asking what are the steps for removal of directors and board members. So a quick 411 on that would be, it depends on how large your association is. But if you have less than a thousand members in your association, the petition needs to be submitted to the existing board calling for the removal of one or all or a few of the board members, that petition would need to be signed by 25% of owners in your association. It would be one lot, one signature, one lot. So you can't have you know two lot owners count as two signatures um, unless they own two lots. So if you're less than a thousand units, it's going to be 25% more than that. It's going to be 10% of the owners would need to sign it. Once that petition is submitted, the board has to check the names. Typically, legal counsel is dialed in at that point and asked for assistance on the process of a petition that's been submitted for the removal. So I guess your question is, how long do they have to comply? So the first thing that the board does when they get a removal petition is they verify the names to make sure that whoever signed it is in fact a record owner. And in fact, that they're not multiple signatures from one unit or lot. So that's the first step. Our firm's done this many times for associations. You know, I would say, depending on how many names are submitted, it could take anywhere from one to three days should be how long it takes. And this is something that when you get as a board, you don't just put this in your inbox on your desk. No, this is something that gets into the hot pile because under the law, you only have 30 days to notice the removal meeting if they have the requisite signatures that they need to notice and conduct it within 30 days. And honestly, that's not a lot of time. I mean, this is like a meeting that's similar to an annual meeting where you have to send out notice of the meeting, not less than 10 days, not more than 50 days in advance. You have to find a venue. You may have to come up with a virtual platform. You have to create the notice of meeting, the absentee ballot, and you have to give owners enough time to vote. And sometimes some of us have owners in Canada and just the mail alone takes forever to get there. They'll never be able to mail it back in time. And so a lot of thought needs to go into this removal meeting. So First step is petition has to be submitted and you have to have the requisite percentage. Like we said, it's either going to be 25% if you're less than a thousand of the owners would have to sign it or 10% if you're more. Next step, the board verifies the signatures. If they have the requisite percentage of signatures, the requisite number under the statute of signatures, then we move forward with noticing the meeting and creating the absentee ballot working on finding the venue, the location for the meeting, if you're going to have it in person or if you're going to have it virtually, setting up the virtual platform. And then you have to conduct the meeting within 30 days um, of that petition being submitted. At the actual removal meeting, the quorum is different from whatever your quorum and your bylaws says. And that quorum is 20% of the owners in the association would have to appear in person or by absentee ballot or virtually. And then at that meeting, a majority of a quorum would have to vote to remove the director or directors. So from experience, I can tell you after attending hundreds of removal meetings, the best advice I can give you if you're a board is act promptly. Reach out to your legal counsel as soon as you get the removal petition. And it's going to be a busy month as you're navigating the removal process. As a homeowner, I don't know how long ago that petition may have been submitted. I would check in with them and just say, hey, where are you on the process? If you didn't have the requisite number of signatures on the petition, the board should notify whoever submitted the petition that that is the case in a reasonable period of time. And it sounds like maybe there hasn't been good communication here. I would reach back out to the board and find out what's going on. 
Okay, next question is, I was appointed to the board in October of 2021 in the open meeting. Was I supposed to conduct business on October 12th or before? Okay, so if you're appointed on the 12th at the open meeting, can I conduct business at that time going forward? So how it works if you're appointed to the board is that typically appointments to a board will happen at the beginning of a meeting so that that board member can participate during that board meeting. So as soon as the board votes to appoint you, it's fair game for you to you know start acting as a board member right then and there from that minute forward as long as you have the requisite votes to be appointed. What question you had was, was I supposed to conduct board, mis- board business on the day I was appointed? I answered that yes, from the time you're appointed forward. Or could you have conducted board business before you were appointed on October 12th? I mean, of course, no, you can't be conducting business as a board member until you're appointed. So before that date that you were appointed, it would not be valid that you were you know, conducting board business as a board member. Okay, next question is from a manager. Great uh, being here today. We've had two manager questions, so that's great. I love to see that. In addition to homeowner questions and also a majority of the questions have been from board members this morning. Okay, here's the manager's question. We have a line item budget. Board member wants to hire an online service. This is not accounted for in our current budget. Additional charge of a thousand annually. He wants to borrow from another potentially over budgeted item, which is insurance, to pay for this. Can you borrow from one line item to create a new category? When voting to pass a budget, doesn't the membership accept the line items in addition to the total number for the budget? Line item accounting is intended for our QuickBooks bookkeeper suggested we use this line item. Apparently they fired her after 20 years of good work and this doesn't seem too friendly. Okay, sounds like we've got a little drama going on here at this association. And honestly, this is, you're not alone. I mean, I think anybody who works in our industry knows that there are issues like this that come up all the time and we just have to continue to remain professional. So as a manager and myself as an attorney representing associations, We are here to guide associations, but ultimately they make the choices. It's their association, it's the association's money. And we just try to guide them to make good decisions and and give our feedback, but ultimately it's their decision that, that they make on these things. Okay, so good question on budgets. And this came up a lot during COVID because we had a lot of extra expenses that weren't things that we expected in 2020, especially less so in 2021, because we kind of knew what we were dealing with on sanitization and signage and more legal fees and um, different things. But so how do you handle it when your board passes the budget before, you know, let's say we, we did this budget in October, November, December, 2021, we have our number of money that we need as income coming in. We gave our homeowners their monthly rate that they have to pay so that we can meet all of our expenses that are budgeted in 2022. But now we have, you know, one board member who wants to change the line items. Okay, so bottom line here is this happens. This this can work, but you have to have a majority of the board agreeing to whatever the change is to the budget. And we do see this from time to time. So I don't know how large your budget is. It's $1,000. I don't know if online service might be related to bookkeeping and maybe you're moving it to an online bookkeeper. Honestly, I don't know based upon the facts that you've given to me. But the bottom line is a majority of the board can vote to change how association money is spent. And so if they want to, you know, 
take a thousand dollars and hire an online service to help them with something, they certainly can do that. But the board has a fiduciary duty to, you know, respond to financial issues with care and to make sure that they're balancing the budget. And so they need to to find a place in the budget to fit this and taking money from the insurance, which is a fixed cost, doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Your insurance costs are not going to go down. Those are usually fixed costs. And if anything, we're seeing increases, you know, six, seven, 8% in insurance for most associations in 2022. So it's not what I would call fiscally prudent to take it from that item insurance. So they're going to need to cut costs somewhere else. They need to take a, a look at the budget carefully and determine where they can fit this in and then make it happen. But again, one board member can't do it. It has to be a majority board to you know change how items are budgeted and to vote to hire a vendor for online service. You'd also need the majority vote of the, of the board. So I hope that answers your question. Next question is from an owner. Can a homeowner have a topic added to the board of directors monthly agenda? I'm assuming this is for the monthly board meeting. If the president refuses to add the question, how can the topic of concern be discussed at the monthly meeting? Okay, so boards typically set the agenda for regular board meetings. And if the board doesn't want to add your item to the agenda, just they don't have to. Now, if I were advising this board and you have an owner that's really fired up about something and they want it added to the agenda, I I probably would have to look at what the issue is, but I can't imagine why we wouldn't spend a few minutes talking about it and listening to the owner. And a really good way to do that would be just to allow the owner to, you know, make a few minute presentation during the owner forum at the beginning of the meeting. Most boards have an owner forum. And that's a really great place for um, owners to come in and talk about issues that they are concerned about or that are important to them. And so I would recommend to the board have the owner, you know, make a statement in the owner forum and, and talk about it. You, you don't necessarily have to make it an agenda topic, specific topic on the agenda, but give them a chance to talk about it at the owner forum. If your board refuses and you don't have owner forums in your association where you can talk before the board meeting or even during the board meeting, you're not allowed to contribute except before the board takes formal action on something, which they're required to let you do under Arizona law, the annual meeting would be a good time to talk about this. The annual meeting is the owner's meeting. It's a time for the board to update the association on the state of affairs in the association in terms of financial affairs, accomplishments, problems, but it's also the owner's meeting and you should be given a chance during the owner's forum at the annual meeting to express whatever concerns you have. Another thing that you can do is if they're the board shutting you down on things, you could write a letter to the association's boards. You're starting a paper trail with your thoughts. So at least they see what you want to talk about in writing and, and hopefully we'll take some action to listen to you. So I hope this um, helps you as you navigate the topics you want to discuss with your association. Okay, we are on question 12 and we have 16 total questions. So it looks like we've got about five more. This question is from a manager. I have, and one of my favorite managers at that. So good to hear from you this morning. The manager's question is, I have a condo association considering sending a CCNR amendment out for vote to change the minimum rental period from seven days to 30 days. Must they grandfather the existing three VRBOs if this passes? 
which is expected to pass, or if the vote comes in for the change to 30 days, then can it apply to all units? Our biggest concern is that is all three VRBOs just purchased their condos in 2021 and relied on the units being short-term rentals. That's why they bought in our community. If these three get grandfathered with just seven days, then it won't really solve our immediate problem. Okay, so great question. This is kind of a sticky wicket because condominiums have an unusual provision in the Condominium Act that says that um, any change of use of property requires 100% approval of owners. And we've seen cases, cases exactly like this for condos, where an association, you know, changes the minimum rental period from whatever is no minimum rental period to, you know, 30 days minimum rental. We've seen some courts say that this is a change of use that requires 100% approval of the membership. We've seen other courts say, no, this isn't a change of use because they can still rent their property and you can impose, you know, a minimum rental period as long as they can still rent. So I hate to tell you this, but it's kind of unclear what a court would do if you're challenged on this. And I'm sure that's not going to be music to your ears, but it's important that I convey to you that, hey, there's a possibility that if the owners, these three owners challenge this, that you could lose if this goes to a court of law. It's unclear what an Arizona court is going to do on this. And we don't have any direction from the Court of Appeals in Arizona yet on this issue. And I probably don't want you to be the test case either, because that's going to be really expensive. So here's what I recommend you do. I recommend that you grandfather these three VRBOs because it'll take away their challenge to, you know, the amendment. And, you know, after the amendment has, you know, been in effect for one year, I'm assuming that you'll be able to get the vote to pass this if you, you know, grandfather the three existing BRBOs for seven days for as long, only for as long as they own the property. And we can write all this into the amendment to make it very clear that it's just these three and it's only for as long as they own the property. And that any owner, you know, that after the date of this amendment, other than these three, is going to be subject to the 30 days minimum rental requirement. After a year of that amendment being recorded, any owner would lose the right to challenge it under the Condominium Act. So you'd be, you know, clear or free and clear. No one else is going to challenge it. And hopefully over time, you know, those three unit owners that are currently VRBOs will change hands. So that would be kind of my practical advice, but give me a call to discuss it. And if you're writing up the language on the amendment, let's talk about it to make sure that we cover all of our bases. Now, of course, you can try to pass it and then see if you get any pushback from the three VRBOs and navigate your way through that with them. But you know, in the back of your head that, hey, this is kind of uncertain. If this goes to court, we may lose. So you want to be careful on that. Okay, the next question, question 13. Our bylaws state the following. To determine which members are entitled to notice of or to vote at any meeting, the board may fix in advance a date as the record date for determination of status of members. Every absentee ballot shall be revocable and shall be automatically ceased upon conveyance of a member's lot. At least three days before each meeting of the members, the secretary of the association shall make a complete list of members entitled to vote at the meeting. The list may be kept on file at the principal office of the association for a period of three days prior to the meeting. 
should be produced and kept open at the meeting and shall be subject to inspection by any member for any purpose germane to the meeting during regular business hours. Okay, our association fixed the record date to 12-31-21. The annual meeting date is February 19th, and that would be when the voting closes. Can an owner of a lot who becomes a member between January 1st and February 19th, 2022 vote? Okay, good question. So under your bylaws, based on what you told me, that the board can fix the date as the record date for the term determination as to who's a member in the association. It also says that if, like in your case, I'm gonna give the example. So it looks like somebody became a member, let's say between January 1st and February 19th. According to this, they cannot vote at the annual meeting unless the board changes the record date, which it doesn't sound like they're going to do. So now the question is, if the prior owner voted, can that ballot be counted? So if they filled out an absentee ballot before the annual meeting, can that ballot be counted? Well, based upon what the section that I read, absentee ballots are revoked once the member is no longer an owner. So no, that ballot is not going to be counted. So yes, this is a little void here, you know, of a month and a half or a little bit over a month and a half where you're potentially, you know, limiting your ability to get a quorum. So I think that record date is way too early. I would recommend that the board specifically even says here that three days before the meeting, the association makes a complete list of the members entitled to vote. Frankly, I would move that record date to three days before the meeting if you're going to have that record date in, in force. That's just my recommendation as legal counsel or just not have a record date. It says the board may fix. It doesn't say you have to. And just let anybody who's a record owner as of February 19th vote. I, I think the board's boxing themselves in with that really early record date. And I don't think it's a good idea. So short answer. Can that owner who became a member at your association between after the record date, let's say, can they vote according to your documents? No. Okay, next question. This is from Facebook Live. So thank you very much for giving us this question on Facebook Live. Our HOA plan community has an extensive irrigation system servicing both common areas and all individual lots. HOA pays for 100% of the water and 100% maintenance and repair of the system. If the system is replaced, is it considered a reserve expense or an operating expense? And why? We're talking about a potential expenditure of $1 million plus. So at first glance, I would definitely say that this irrigation system would be a reserve item. I don't know if you've had a reserve study done, but it, in my opinion, it's kind of a no-brainer. This would be in the reserve as a reserve item. I don't know why it would be considered an operating expense. The only expenses that I would say could be considered operating expenses would be like regular maintenance that you might be using your operating funds to you know, pay for maybe purification. I don't know what you're doing with the irrigation system, but regular maintenance. But if you're actually going to replace it, like you said here, this is clearly gonna be a reserve expense in my opinion. Okay, now, of course, I haven't seen your CCNRs, and you know, I, sometimes irrigation systems have a separate district. I've got a couple associations, like an Arrowhead Ranch, where they actually have an irrigation district, which is totally separate from the association. So I don't know how yours is set up. In that case, 
the district handles the maintenance and the placement and care, et cetera. So, I mean, I'm just going based upon the facts that you've given me. It doesn't sound like you have that. It sounds like it's just an expense that is a repair item that's part of your association. And it, it does sound to me like that should be a reserve item to replace it if that's the case. Okay, four more questions. This next question is question 15. And the question is, what is the best first step to amending our 1970s CCNRs after the board has agreed that it's time to do this and a letter has been sent to all owners letting them know that 2022 is the year to do this. We need to establish some kind of budget for it. We have already sent your five-step plan to homeowners. Okay, I'm loving this this question. First, thanks so much for looking at our five-step plan. It's a great plan. So for those of you who may not be familiar with it, our firm has a cheat sheet called Amending Association Documents, a five-step plan. It can be found on our website at mokehilawfirm.com. And on the cheat sheets tab, just click on that. Once you click on that, then go into amending association documents. And what I can tell you about the five-step plan is it's just a great strategy to amend documents, whether your documents are really old, like yours from 1970, or whether they're from the 90s or 2000s, 2015, whatever. It's a great plan. And basically what it does is it just gives you five steps. The first step is determine what it takes to amend the documents. Second step, come up with the changes with your association's legal counsel and the board working together closely. Step three, go to your homeowners before you're sending it to them to vote and ask for their feedback and input as to how they feel about the amendments. Step four, listen to your homeowners, review what their comments are and make appropriate changes to whatever you're proposing in your documents to amend and come up with the final changes and a strategy for how long you're going to put the vote out there and how you're going to get people to vote. And then the last step is after it's passed, record the amendment with the recorder's office. If it's a CCNR amendment, if it's a bylaw amendment, put it in your association's records, notify your owners that it's passed and make sure that you're giving title companies the correct documents on any close of escrow. Okay, so to specifically answer your question, okay, what's the budget? You know, 1970 CCNRs, if you know, I would probably budget to be safe about five grand for that. It may be less, but I think that's a safe number. Some suggestions that I would give you, since your documents are so old, I think I'd let the attorney take the first crack at amending them. And basically what the attorney will do is they'll put those in a Word document, the 1970s CCNRs, and they'll redline changes first. And then they give the changes to the board and have the board look at them, come up with their own changes, make comments on what the attorney has done. I think that's smarter here because if the board takes the first stab at amending them and making the changes, honestly, it's going to take the attorney more time to go in and revise it after that. So it's best just to give the attorney the first crack at it. So, you know, the budget I think should be five grand. Have the attorney do the first review of the documents so that you're more cost efficient on this process. And honestly, your, your owner should recognize this. It's been 50, almost 52 years since your documents were amended. Most associations, you know, we're advising our clients that you should be amending your documents at least once a decade. And that's actually kind of uh, loose. I mean, a lot of associations think it's more like five years, but most associations don't have the budgets to do that. So we recommend just making the changes once every decade. Um, and 51 or two years is a very long time. You guys need to bring those documents up to speed this year. 
Okay, next question. We have a rule that trash containers are not allowed in owner's carports. Curtains or screens are also not allowed. There's nothing about this in either the CCNRs or the bylaws, so we go by the rules. You said earlier when answering the question about drones that items have to be visible from common area. Does that mean that the owner can hide the container behind something like a pot? Okay, great question. So I'm not sure that we can use the analysis that we did for the drones for this particular issue. So your CCNRs and your bylaws don't talk about trash containers. And so if they don't put them in the carport, I guess just as the attorney listening to the story, where do they put them? I'm guessing maybe like on the side of the house, like in an enclosed area so that they're not visible. That's what I'm thinking maybe is, is going on behind the scenes here. And then maybe some people just leave them in their carport for ease and they don't really want to go all the way around to an enclosed area to put them away. I, I don't know. But here's the bottom line. So if your association has rulemaking authority that would allow the board to pass a rule saying no trash containers in carports, you can do that. What I would be looking for is do the rules have something in there that says it's pretty broad rulemaking authority, like the board can pass rules regarding the common areas and owners' properties, because technically the, the carport is, is going to be considered uh, either an exclusive use common area, limited common area, or it might even be considered part of the unit. So do you have the authority to make a rule regarding that? That would be something I'd be looking at if you were asking me to give a formal opinion on this. So I'd go to your bylaws and your CCNRs and see what it says about how broad the rulemaking authority is. Maybe it's really broad and it just says the board can pass rules regarding owner's behavior or regarding any aspect of running the association. If that's the case, your rule is A plus legit. You can enforce that even if they're hiding it behind a big pot. It's something that you can enforce. If your rulemaking authority is less broad and it only allows you to you know, pass rules regarding the use and enjoyment of the common areas, you're going to have to determine if this area that you're making a rule on is exceeding the amount of authority you have to make a rule. And you may have to have your lawyer help you take a look at that and determine. So the short answer to your question, does that mean that the owner can hide the container behind a pot? No. If you have broad rulemaking authority and you have a rule saying no trash containers in somebody's carport. They can't hide something so that it can't be seen. They can't do it. Okay, next question um, is also from Facebook. So thanks again for all of our Facebook viewers here today. I know on Zoom, we had like over 70 people at one point on, this, on the Zoom call. We have a number of you joining us on Facebook. So thanks everybody for staying. And all of you are still here, which is awesome. We have our last two questions. So is it legal to have only two board members? It depends. What do your bylaws say? So the only time I can really see that it would be legal to have only two board members is if your bylaws call for a three-member board. You know, usually, I don't think I've ever seen an association with bylaws that say you have a two-member board. So the lowest number that we've seen for bylaws in the bylaws for number of board members, minimum number is three. So let's say that you do have that in your documents and you know, two is a quorum, then it would be legal to have only two board members if, you know, you have a requirement to have a minimum of three and you have two. Um, of course, you, two is not very many people and you should be trying to get that third board member if in fact you have, you know, three 
as your minimum number required. Now let's analyze this. If you have a requirement to have five board members and you only have two board members, you know, then you don't have a quorum of board members and it's not legal to have a two member board. So we see associations in the situation from time to time where we don't have enough people serving on the board to even have a quorum. And in, in that case, you really need to be reaching out to our firm to give you advice on how you can drum up some support to get some new board members. Sometimes we send a letter to the homeowners explaining the consequences of not having enough people to serve on the board, whether it's sometimes we have nobody wants to serve on the board. Sometimes it's less than a quorum, or maybe sometimes we have a situation like, like maybe it's you where it's two out of three. We're supposed to have three. We only have two board members. But once we send that letter, I can tell you with 100% certainty that we've always gotten volunteers for the board. Basically, what the letter says is that if we can't find people to serve on the board and have a quorum of the board or have a functioning board, that this matter could go to um, receivership and the court will appoint a receiver to run the association, which will cost the association significantly more money. So just some things to think about as you are navigating whether or not you have enough board members. Next question also from Facebook. Looks like we have one more that was just added. So we have two questions left. I am a board member. We are a small association and that have never had an audit done by a CPA. We really can't afford to pay for an audit to be done every year as stated in our bylaws. We've already raised the association fees the max we could by our bylaws. What do we do when we keep running into situations that we are in violation of our bylaws and our responsibilities because we can't afford to do what we are required to do? Okay, a couple things. Your documents require an audit to be done by a CPA every year. And under Arizona law, if your documents require that, you you have to do it and you could be sued for not doing it. So this is really something that's quite serious. You have to find a way to get that done or you should amend that provision in your bylaws to take that provision out. Now, don't forget too, under Arizona law, every association is required to have an audit reviewer compilation annually. But again, an audit by CPA is only required under Arizona law if it's in your bylaws, like in your association. So I think you guys need some advice. I know you don't have any money and probably don't have money to hire a lawyer, but you need somebody to come in and help you figure out how you can navigate this because it looks like you don't have enough money. You're not able to increase your assessments above whatever your minimum requirements are and you're running out of money. And that's a sinking ship. And so we need to get this ship pointed in the right direction. We need to figure out a way to increase your assessment rates so that you can live up to your financial and your legal responsibilities as a board and you don't get sued. So I really encourage you to reach out to our firm so we can talk with you, give you some suggestions on how you can better navigate this so that you don't get sued and so that you, you know, your association is financially stable. Okay, we've got two more questions. One more was just added. So the next question is, if a board member resigned a couple of months before their term expired, then a few months later, the board reappointed the resigning member back to the board, but at a term that was longer. Is that proper? Should the board member have been appointed back to their original term or stand for election? Okay, a couple thoughts. So if I were looking at this issue, I would go to the bylaws and I would look to see what it says about resignations and appointments to the board. 
typically what we see is if an owner resigns from the, being a board member, that resignation is effective upon receiving written receipt of the resignation. That spot, that board member spot that they just vacated, either it is filled until the next election or they're appointed for the rest of that board member's term that just resigned. It just depends on what your bylaws say. Here, your question is, we had a board member resign and it looks like there were a couple of other vacancies on the board. So that board member's spot, you know, had a certain term that he resigned from, but he or she resigned from it. And that's that, that person's no longer on the board. So a few months later, they go back and now we're going to put that board member that resigned back on the board, but on we're going to assign him to a term, a vacant term on the board that is maybe longer than what his term was that he vacated, you know, a couple months ago. Okay. Unusual. I'm not going to lie to you. Is it proper? There's nothing against it legally. I mean, I'm not, I, I can't say that it's illegal. I can't say, you know, I can't even really say that it's improper. I can say that it's unusual and it looks fishy. If you were a homeowner and you saw this, it would look like there was like musical chairs of the board to get a longer term and to ensure longevity of that board member on the board. Maybe that's not the case here. And I don't know, maybe no one else is raising that. And honestly, maybe no one wants to be on your board. <laughs> and so it's just survival that you're putting this person on for a longer term. I don't know. I don't think it's illegal, but I do think it could raise some eyebrows from homeowners. So the question is, should the board member have been appointed back to the original term? I don't think that there was any legal requirement to do that. Any open term, you know, since they were not a, no longer a board member, they could be appointed to any open term, you know, that was open on for a board member on your board. Um, should they have to stand for election? It just depends on what your documents say. When you appoint the director, according to your bylaws, they're appointed forever long, the bylaws say. So some bylaws say they're appointed until the next annual meeting. Some bylaws say they're appointed for the rest of the term of the director that vacated. So it really just depends on what your documents state. Okay, our last question is, says, we are updating our rules and regulations for our association, not our CCNR. Specifically, we're updating our rules. These rules have been in place since the association inception in the 1990s to remove old rules that are no longer valid or appropriate. Do we need a legal review with our attorney before the board signs off on them? Or is it simply your recommendation to do so? And this is submitted from a board member. So here's our recommendation. Rules can be problematic. And we highly recommend that you have your attorney, I think maybe you're a client of ours, look at the rules quickly and make sure that they are valid, that there's nothing in there that violates state or federal law or your documents. This is not going to be an extensive review. This is going to be a quick in and out. And I highly recommend that your association do this to make sure that what you're passing is legally proper and correct. Okay, somebody just got in under the wire. Uh, one last question. So we have an assessment lien on a homeowner that will soon be paid. We request the lien release papers and who pays, the association or the homeowner? Hmm, I'm not sure I really understand this. Okay, so we have an assessment lien on a homeowner that will soon be paid. Okay, I'm guessing maybe that this is a close of escrow and 
we request the lien release paper and who pays. Okay. So I think maybe what you're saying is homeowners paid their lien off, right? And they want the lien released. Who pays for the lien release? The homeowner. So just so you know, you pay for all expenses associated with that lien. So if you had a lien on your property, you pay for the cost to put it on your property. And once you pay the lien off, all the money that's owed, you pay to take the lien off the property. So that would be a homeowner expense. I'm loving how you guys are just like under the wire giving me questions. So this will be our last question today. It just popped up on my screen. A homeowner passed away and the daughter was granted judgment of possession in Louisiana for this property. The deed is still listed under the parents who have passed here in Arizona. The daughter has not been to Arizona and the unit remains vacant for many years. They've not paid their dues since April of 2020. If the board sends this daughter, who's the owner now, to collections, will there be an issue with a deed being under the deceased parents' names, but the new homeowner having a judgment of possession in Louisiana? How does judgment of possession in Louisiana work for Arizona? Okay, so I'm sorry you had a little trouble submitting this through the Google form. And we'll make sure that we work out any kinks for the next First Friday free call-in. But I don't think we had too many problems because I think we saw pretty much a lot of questions today. So, okay, quick question. We see this in Arizona a lot where parents retire to Arizona and unfortunately over time they pass away. And then relatives from other states inherit the property. Sometimes it's through a beneficiary deed where it's automatic. The, the new owner becomes the automatic new owner. Sometimes it's happen, it happens through out-of-state you know, possession, like it's happened here through a, a judgment possession in Louisiana. Here's what I recommend. We, whenever we look at a property owing money to an association, we're going to do a credit analysis on the property. And I would want to know, well, first it is collectible. That's bottom line. Okay. So someone's going to pay this. Okay. And probably going to be looping in the judgment of possession from Louisiana and the daughter somehow. And it's, it's not a perfectly clean and easy way to get the money, but we're going to get it. So that's the bottom line. She owes it. And the evidence of the judgment of possession in Louisiana is going to be helpful. Sometimes we don't even have that evidence. We just have the deceased person's you know name on the deed and we don't have anything else. And so let me tell you what we do when we get a case like this. We look at the property and we determine, are there any encumbrances on it? Like, is there a deed of trust? Are there any judgments against it? We want to get a picture of how much the value of the property is versus how much is owed on it. Nine times out of 10 in Arizona, when we have parents that pass away, it's free and clear. And so there is absolutely no reason whatsoever that this daughter in Louisiana isn't paying the property. I mean, I get it. It's vacant. And maybe this daughter doesn't know what to do with the property, but we cannot go on. You know, it's going to be two years here in April that this hasn't had any money paid on it. So here's what I recommend. Um, first, do the credit analysis. If I had to guess, this is probably free and clear. If it's not free and clear and there are some liens on the property, just evaluate, okay, what's the property worth? If it's worth 200 grand and maybe we've got 20 grand in liens on it, hello, there's tons of equity. This person is not going to walk away from this. So what I would recommend, do the credit evaluation on the property. Reach out to the daughter and explain to the daughter in writing via a demand letter from like our law firm, send her a demand letter saying, here's the situation on this property. If you don't pay within 30 days, here's what we're going to do. The letter should clearly outline that, you know, there's a lien on the property now. We're going to foreclose this lien. And she'll be named as somebody with a judgment of possession. 
the litigation guarantee will, you know, name the estate of the parents and we'll go to court and get a foreclosure foreclosure judgment. And ultimately this property will be sold at a share sale and an investor will buy it and the investor will start paying. So either the daughter is going to pay up and likely will do something on the property, like actually put it up for sale or we'll get paid the sale of the property, or maybe the daughter just writes us a check and pays it. Or this goes the sheriff sale route where we go to superior court, foreclose and have a sheriff sale of the property and investors can buy it because there's likely going to be equity here. So these are your options. Doing nothing is not an option. Okay, this has been going on for a long time. And the longer you wait, the more rights you're losing. And I mean, let's face it, you're losing income on this property. So um, all past due assessments, late fees, attorney's fees, collection costs, all of those will need to be paid by the daughter or through the sheriff sale. So don't wait on this one act because after a certain time period, you're going to lose your rights to foreclose and you need to do something on this now. Okay, closing remarks for today. Thank you so much for being here for our first virtual first Friday of 2022. We had about 75 attendees on Zoom and over 15 viewers live on Facebook Live today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for caring about your associations, wanting to know information and answers to your questions. This really is a great service that we we provide because it gives you a chance to ask questions for free. And a lot of times boards, you know, don't have the legal budget or they maybe you're one board member or a homeowner or a manager and you're not, you know, being allowed by your board to ask a question of your lawyer. This is for you. And so we enjoy teaching this and providing the service once a month. We'll be back next uh, month in February for First Fridays again, same time, first Friday of the month, 9 a.m. Don't forget, we have two classes this month that are virtual, that are free also for you. Scottsdale Neighborhood College class next Wednesday. Uh, it's virtual at one o'clock and we're going to be talking about rental properties and how we can work with them and have solutions so that we all can get along and parking headaches, how to handle parking headaches. So we encourage you to join us for that. And then our first class in our virtual HOA Condo Academy is January 18th. So that's in just under two weeks at 11 a.m., also virtual. And we're going to be giving you an overview of everything that you know that's important, that you need to know that's important for running an association, whether you're a board member, manager, homeowner, what are the laws, just a really good overview to start out the year. And, and we're going to kind of talk a little bit about what are the trends that we are going to see in 2022 and how can we best prepare for them? And we're going to close out with some tip, tips on how to be a successful association in 2022 and create goals for your association. So hope you'll join us for those two other learning activities this month. Also, just another soft request. If any of you are so inclined, we sure would appreciate a positive review on Google, Facebook, or on Yelp of our law firm, Mulcahy Law Firm. It helps us get information out by putting us to the top of, of Google searches and also helps um, spread the word about our firm to others who might be thinking about working with us. So take care, everybody. Happy New Year. Stay safe. Look forward to seeing you in the future at our virtual events in 2022. Have a good weekend. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 